All right, so let me just get a raise of hands here. How many of you would say you're claustrophobic? Claustrophobic? Okay, a few of you. I am very claustrophobic. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. When I was a kid, we had this toy chest thing. It was pretty big, and you could sit in it if you wanted to. And it was one of those things where the thing would, you know, the top would also close by itself. And I was probably, I was young. I don't know how old I was, and we had some friends over. And my older brother got into the, the little toy chest thing, and we had some friends over. And the friends sat on it so he couldn't get out. And it was only like 20 seconds long, but let me tell you what, I was scarred for life. I never sat in that thing again because I was like, if that is me, I'm, I'm not going to make it, right? So I just, it's awful. Or last year, we took a family vacation to the mountains, and we went to, you know when you go to the mountains, there's like caves and caverns that you can tour and all that sort of thing. Well, we went to this cavern. It was me and my brothers and my wife, Christina, and my sister-in-law. And we're, so we're, we're walking through this thing, and like every 15 seconds, no joke, the tour guide is stopping to talk to tell us something. And I'm like, can we just go? Like, let us see the thing. And then I realized that if we had just walked in and out, it would only take two minutes. So they kind of like try to make it worth your money to go. And so we're going, but there was this one part where there was like this little skinny gate, or not gate, but like this skinny little thing. They're like, everyone line up and just let's walk down it. And so I thought it was going to be, we're going to walk down it. Oh, it's small. Okay, let's walk back out. And I was near the front of the line, so I was like fourth or fifth. And so the closer we're to the front, you know, the more tight it is, and there's people on your way, so you can't get out. And so we're going there, and I'm like, okay, this is great. And I'm like going to turn around, and the tour guide decides to do her thing and talk for like five minutes. And so I'm standing there, and I'm going like this. And one of my brothers is looking next to me. He's like, dude, are you okay? And he thought I was joking. I was like, literally, I'm about to pass out. And so if I was in the front of the line, it would have been, it would have been game over. But it was awful. Like, I hated it. And so I hate being stuck in tight places. You might hate being stuck in tight places. Um, but I want to ask this question as we begin today. We're looking at the I am statement that Jesus says that I am the gate. And here's the question I want us to begin with this morning. Uh, can a gate create freedom? That's what I want us to ask as we begin. Because normally when we see gates like this or gates in the yard or things like that, what do we think? We think restriction. We think, oh, you can't get in there. You can't get out. Uh, my question for us this morning is, can a gate actually create freedom? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, and that's the question that we're going to look at. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, if, there's not, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. You can take that black one home. That would be our gift to you. And I want to read you some context about what's going on before we read the passage. So we're in this series called I Am, Jesus in His Own Words, and we're letting Jesus tell us who He is about Himself. In the book of John in the New Testament, there are seven I Am statements of Jesus. We're at statement number three, and I'm going to give you a little bit of context before we read this I Am statement in John chapter 10. So what happened, if you were here last week, we saw that Jesus said that He was the light. So He's in the middle of, this te- of, this temple, of the temple of Jerusalem, and every year this is called, there's a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would celebrate that God led the Israelites through the wilderness with a pillar of fire by night, this cloud of fire by night, and a couple other things. And Jesus basically says, I am the light. I was the one who was there. I am God. The religious leaders don't like this. And so by the end of John chapter 8, they try to stone him. They try to kill him. But he gets away because his time has not yet come. Then John chapter 9, Jesus performs a miracle. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. Now, the thing about whenever Jesus talks, whenever Jesus performs miracles, sometimes we're kind of reading the, the, the Bible. We're like, oh, that's kind of cool. But what you got to understand is that anytime Jesus says something or does something, he does it with extreme intentionality. It's not just random acts that he's doing to kind of say, hey, I'm God, I'm here. He always does it on purpose. And so he heals a blind man. And what that was representing was not just that he gave a blind man sight, but he was showing that, again, Jesus is the light. He gives light to all people. If you follow him, you have light. And so he heals the blind man to show again that he is the light, that he gives us light if we trust and follow in him. And so then all the religious leaders find this blind man and they're like, who healed you? And the 
blind man didn't, he knew the name, he knew the guy who healed him, his name was Jesus, but he didn't know he was Jesus, Jesus Christ. Jesus in that time was a very uh, normal name. And so what happened, Jesus kind of spit in some mud, put it on his eyes and told the blind man to walk down to this pool to wash off. And so by the time the blind man could actually see, Jesus was gone. And so the religious leaders don't like this because, again, Jesus just claimed to be God, and they're pretty sure it's the same Jesus that, you know, everyone has been following. And so they get the blind man, they get his parents, and they say, has he been blind from birth? And they're saying, yes. Everyone in the town is like, this guy has always been blind. And so they're asking this guy who healed you, and the guy's like, basically, it's this guy named Jesus. What they wanted him to do is they wanted him to say it wasn't Jesus. They wanted him to say he wasn't blind from birth. He wouldn't do that because he was actually healed. And so what they do is they end up throwing him out of the temple. In other words, they kind of excommunicate him. They say, you are no longer welcome here because you're claiming that this Jesus guy gave you sight. Jesus finds out about it, goes and finds this man um, that he healed, and basically tells him that if you believe in me, that your sins are forgiven, that you can have life, that I am the Messiah, I am who you have heard about. And so he tells this guy this, and then he ha- and then we go to John chapter 10, and that's the backdrop of what he's, what he's saying here at John chapter 10, because what has just happened is that these religious leaders that are supposed to love, you know, the least of these, love these people, have instead rejected this man who had just received sight. Jesus is pretty upset about it, and so he goes on to say this, John chapter 10, verse 1, he says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. One who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So let me just get you caught up on your sheepology. If you don't have any sheep at your house, I don't know. So basically what happened that time, sometimes it was a cave or cavern. Most often it was between houses. They would have, you know, sheep pens. Like they would have gates around where people would keep their sheep at night. You would often have multiple flocks in there so they wouldn't have to build a lot of them. Multiple flocks would be in the sheep or in the shepherd or... In, the, in these gate pens, the sheep pens. And then oftentimes they would hire like under shepherds to watch the sheep when the shepherds were out or in the middle of the night so people wouldn't steal it. And so what he's saying is that anyone who doesn't, whoever, whoever climbs into the gate instead of entering in the front door is a thief and a robber. And what he's basically saying in no uncertain term is that these religious leaders that are treating people like this, treating this blind man like this, even though he did nothing wrong, they are like thieves and robbers. They do not actually care for the sheep like they are supposed to. He continues in verse 3. He says, he, uh, the gatekeeper opens it for him. So the gatekeeper opens the front of the gate for the shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. So what, again, what's most likely happening here, especially in this analogy, is that the shepherd will enter through the front gate. He would call his sheep. I don't know if it's a call or a whistle or how that all works, but the sheep, only the sheep who knew that shepherd would come to him. So the other sheep would stay in there because they're not, they don't recognize the voice of other people. And so what this is saying is that a good shepherd, the shepherd who actually cares for his flock, will call out his sheep. The sheep will respond to him because they know him. And he doesn't just call out his sheep, is that he also knows them by name. That the shepherd, and he's talking about himself here, personally knows his sheep and they know him. It kind of reminds me, it's kind of funny, I'm in this stage of life where we've got two young kids and so uh, we've got some friends who don't have kids yet and some friends who do have kids and it's always funny to me when you're hanging out with people and there's kids around and you've got some friends who don't have kids yet so they don't understand that when your kid cries, you can tell it's your kid. Right? It's, just, it's really funny. It's like, I can't tell anyone else's kid, but if it's Finley or Roman, like, I can tell it's my kid. And my friends that don't have kids, like, how do you know? And I'm like, I don't know. You just kind of get it, I guess, when the kid comes out. You're just kind of like, that's my kid. Right? And that's kind of what happens. Like, you know, you know the sound of your kid's voice. You don't know maybe everyone else's. And that's what he's saying here is that the shepherd actually knows the sounds of the sheep, and the sheep actually knows the shepherd. And what he's doing is he's calling his sheep to follow him. He's inviting sheep to follow him. 
Then he says this in verse 4, when he has brought all of his own outside, so when he brings the sheep out of the sheep pen, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. So contrary to kind of how we see it today, like when you see sheep walking around, you kind of like see sheep dogs and they're kind of getting herding together, herding together. Well, back then in the Middle East, and even oftentimes in some parts of the world, even still today, they don't use sheep dogs. Instead, they have trained the sheep to follow the voice of the shepherd. So all the sheep do is the shepherd goes out before them and the sheep just follow their voice. Now, I don't know why Everyone doesn't do that way. I guess it's probably, my guess is that it takes more work to train a sheep to follow the voice, but that's all it looks like back then, is the shepherd would come out, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They don't need any guidance. They don't need anyone wrangling together. They simply follow the voice of the shepherd because they know his voice. Verse 5, they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Basically, he was saying, I'm the shepherd. Those who know me will follow me. Those who don't know me will reject me because they don't know my voice. Many of the people and the religious leaders that were kind of against Jesus do not follow Jesus because they don't actually know his voice. They don't kind of totally pick up on what he's saying. And so he uses these next verses to explain what he means. And so the next two I am statements, one we're looking at this morning, and then one we'll look at next week, come from this analogy that Jesus has given us, has just given us here. And here's what he said. Here's the first analogy that we're looking at, the I am statement this morning in verse 7. It says this, Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. Again, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. In other words, here's what he's saying. Verse 9, I am the gate. Anyone who enters by me will save and come out and find pasture. What he's saying is anyone who enters by me will find freedom, will find hope, will find forgiveness. What's also interesting here in verse 10, he says, a thief will come only to kill, steal, and destroy. Oftentimes, thieves wouldn't go through the the entrance of the gate because it wouldn't even matter. If they open the the sheep pen, the, the entrance of the gate, the sheep don't come out because they don't recognize the voice of the stranger. So oftentimes, it would be, it would be a physical, brutal thing. They would take the sheep and they would start throwing them out or they would start pushing them out so that they would eventually follow each other because they don't follow the voice of strangers. And what Jesus is saying here is that only those who enter through him, only those who enter through the gate that he has provided for us will find life. That is what he's saying. And so basically, here's what we need to know this morning. It may seem obvious. Here's what Jesus is telling us. He's saying that I am the gate. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the gate. Now, again, we've said this last week. We'll see this each week during the series. He's not saying he is a gate. He's not saying he is the best gate. He's not saying he's one of many gates. He is saying, I am the gate. If you want to find hope and life and forgiveness, you must enter through me. There are no other options. It's either the gate that he came to make a way for us, or there is no gate. And if you want to find hope, forgiveness, and freedom, you must enter the gate. You must enter through me. And here's why this is important, right? Because if we want to find freedom and hope and forgiveness then we need to understand that the gate leads to life. Here's why this is important, because the gate leads to life. What does it say again in verse 10? A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. That is why he came to give us life, and if we enter through him, that is where we actually find it. And let's just think about what do gates do for just a second. What do gates do? They keep things in, and they also keep things out. So maybe you have a baby gate, or maybe you have a house gate around your, your house. Maybe you have a, a security gate around a, 
a building, or maybe you have, you know, like a, like a, not a force field, what I'm trying to say here, you know, home security systems. You can still break into a home security system, but it like kind of tells you, you know, it kind of tells you what's going on. And here's the thing about those things. What's interesting about all these different gates is that, is that you, 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 you put them in place, why? To give you peace, to give you freedom of mind, to know things are going to be okay, to know things are protected, right? And so you create things, whether it's a gate or maybe it's markers about who's allowed to come in here and who's not supposed to come in here. It's boundaries, and the boundaries are there for a reason. Like, I even think, like, even bathrooms, right? You have men bathrooms and, and women's bathrooms, and most people would say that's a good thing. Why? Because when you go into the bathroom, it's vulnerable, and, you know, so you want to be, you want to feel safe and secure. And so, again, you have differences or you have boundaries not to hold people back, so people can actually feel okay, people can actually feel free. And speaking of bathrooms, and I don't know if this has traumatized me, but I still remember it to this day, that when I was about eight years old was the first time I walked into a, a, the women's bathroom completely by accident, okay? And so we were driving to Florida, I still remember it with my grandparents, and I didn't see anything, but it just like gave me like, oh, I freaked out so bad. We were at a Burger King on the way to Florida, and I wasn't looking or anything, I just walked into the bathroom, and there was some woman going to the bathroom, and there was a woman washing her hands, and she happened to be, the woman washing her hands was, was an employee, and she stares at me, and she goes, what are you doing in here? And my face was red. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to. So I ran out. I probably had an accident because I didn't go to the bathroom. I was so scared, right? And I hated it. I was so, I was so nervous. Why? Because I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be and I didn't mean to. And I just want to ask, I know this is kind of a tangent here. I just want to ask, because I was asking a couple guys this week and some, one guy was like, yes, I totally agree with that. Another guy was like, what are you talking about? Guys, I'll ask you raise your hand in a second. When you walk into the bathroom, and you don't see a urinal within like three seconds, do you freak out on the inside a little bit? Anybody? Okay, see? I didn't know this until I, I, I thought I was just traumatized. Like, I, it's like I, I literally, if I don't see a urinal right away, I'm like, I'm in the wrong place. And it's kind of funny. So we go to the YMCA to work out. That's where I get these muscles that don't just grow on trees. And so, <laughs> and so but the, the rest or the, the, you know, the locker room and all that sort of thing, you know, they have the men's walk, locker room and the women's locker room. So I walk in and it's like a 10 foot walk. There's like this little hallway. So then it's like the, every single time I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm in the right place. And then you, when you actually get into the locker room, you can't see the, the toilets. Like all you see is the lockers and then you have to go around. And so, and literally until I see a guy walk by, I'm like freaking out, like, am I going to get thrown out of here? Am I going to get arrested? New city, I'm a pastor, this is going to be bad. All the time, I'm just, just saying all the time, I freak out about it. But, but here's the deal, right? These things aren't for our restriction. They're actually meant for our freedom. Like think of it this way, like maybe you have young kids and you, so you build a fence in your backyard. Why do you build a fence? Maybe it's because you don't want them running out in the street. Maybe you've got woods and you don't want them to get lost. You don't build a fence to hold them back. You build a fence so that every two minutes you don't have to go outside and be like, where are you? Are you okay? Are you safe? In the confines of the fence of the backyard, they can play and run freely and no one has to worry about it. That's what's happening with a fence. And it's kind of interesting. I want to read a quote by a guy by the name of Kenneth Boa. It'll be on the screen. And it's found in his book, uh, conform to his image. And he's talking about this idea of boundaries, right? This idea of, of gates, if you will. And he says this. He says, I've desired the ability to sit before the keyboard of a piano and make glorious music. But my craving to do so has never been matched by a willingness to invest the time, energy, and discipline to make it happen. In other words, his desire to want to learn how to play the piano has never been matched by a, the discipline. In other words, the gate or the boundary by which it actually takes to learn how to play the piano. Like you have to like practice. You have to say no to certain things with your time so you can actually get good at it. And he continues on by saying this, only those who pay this price, who take the discipline to actually learn how to play, have the freedom to make the instrument sing. 
Thus, discipline is the path to freedom rather than bondage. And it's so fascinating to me that he uses this word, that discipline, what do we think of? We think restriction, we think I can't do this, but what he is saying is that discipline is the path to freedom, not bondage. And this quote has always stuck out to me. I I think I first read this when I was in high school for two reasons. One, because when you read it, you're like, oh, that's true. Anything that's worth learning or getting good at, you have to focus time, energy, and effort in order to actually be good at it, so you can't just kind of do whatever you want. And this has always stuck out to me because this was me growing up. So I had to, I took piano lessons all growing up, and I hated them. I hated them until I was like in high school, and then I was done. But I hated them. Why? Because it wasn't fun. When you're first learning to play an instrument, it wasn't fun. Especially, it's different than like a guitar where everyone's like, oh, this is on the radio. Can you go ahead and play it? And I was like playing like classical music. Like nobody, nobody cares about that. I mean, they do, but not when you're 10 years old. You don't care about that, right? And what would happen? Every week, I had to practice 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes is a long time when you're a kid. And not only do you have to practice 30 minutes every day, you have to go to an hour piano lesson every single week to make sure you practice, right? And so every, and all this time when I'm sitting here practicing, I'm like, my friends are playing video games right now. This isn't fun. I don't have, this isn't fair. I don't want to do this, right? But what happened over time? Over time, I learned how to play the piano, and now I have the freedom to actually play it, but that would not have happened if I had not restricted myself or had been forced to restrict my time and energy (laughs) to learn how to do it. And here's the irony, right? We think discipline, we think gates, we think boundaries, but what does it actually do? It actually created freedom, which means we need to understand when it comes to Jesus being the gate, we need to understand this, that the gate is for our freedom. The gate is for our freedom, not our restriction, not our bondage, not to hold us back, but it's actually for our freedom. And this is not how we often think about God, right? Maybe if you've been in the church for a while and you follow Jesus, maybe you've kind of like, okay, that's not true. I understand who Jesus is. But oftentimes when we come to God the first time, and maybe you're not sure about this Jesus thing, so maybe this is kind of your thoughts, what do we think about when we think about God? We don't think about freedom and joy stereotypically. We think restriction. We think he doesn't want me to have fun. We think he doesn't want me to have a good time. We think he wants to hold us back. But instead, what we actually see is that Jesus came to give us freedom, right? Again, when we think God, we often think restriction, but instead, he came to give us freedom. In other words, Jesus is saying that this is why I came. This is why I came, not to hold you back, but to give you significance, meaning, and purpose. And I'm right here, and you don't have to be searching for me because I am right here. And what's so interesting to me is that in our culture today, what do we say we want more than anything else? We want freedom. We want personal autonomy. We don't want anyone telling us what we want to do. Now, I would say it's not that we want freedom. What we really want is significance, meaning, and purpose. But in our day and age, we think that that is found in freedom. And so we say, no one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me I'm wrong. If you disagree with me, well, then that's your problem. I'm not going to change anything about myself. What Jesus is saying is, I am here. It's not freedom that we want. It's significant meaning and purpose. And I came for you so that you could have that. I came so that you could have life not to hold you back. That is exactly why I came. In fact, it reminds me of a passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. It'll also be on the screen. 1 Peter is written by Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the the first foundational leader of the early church. And here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, uh, towards the end of, of this letter. He says this, "'Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may, what? Exalt you at the proper time.'" Humble yourselves under God, not so that he will restrict you, not so that he will hold you back, not so that you will miss out on life. No, humble yourself under God so that he will exhaust you. In other words, he will give you significance. He will give you freedom. Why should we do this? 
casting all your cares on him, or casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. We do this because he cares for us. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings you are being, you are being experienced by your, or you, same kind of sufferings you are experienced are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And this is what this passage reminds me of, and I've said this before, but I think it's, it bears repeating because it's just true, that one of the greatest works of the devil has been to convince people that God works like the devil and that the devil works like God. I'll say that again, and then I'll explain what I mean here. One of the greatest works of the devil has been to convince people that God works like the devil and that the devil works like God. Here's what I mean. When you watch shows and, you know, you got the little angels and the demon, like, sitting on the uh, shoulder, who do you always want to side with? The demon, because he's like, oh, I just want you to have fun. It's going to be a good time. The angel's like, oh, you can't do that because God will be mad at you. And it's like, no, it's boring. Like, nobody wants that. I want to have some fun, right? And it's the picture of, in our society, what we just even think in our head, the first thing we think in our head, we think that, that the enemy, that, that the Satan, if he's even real, I would, that's what, kind of what we think. We think, he just wants me to have fun. God's the one, one's the one that wants, is the one that wants to hold me back. And I just want to let you know this morning, this isn't like a fire and brimstone thing, but it's just true that the thought that the devil cares for us more than God and that the devil wants our freedom and wants us to experience good thing and God just wants to hold us back is straight from the pit of hell. It is straight from the pit of hell that the, that the devil wants you to think that he cares for you and God just wants to hold you back. No, what we actually know is that the devil wants the same uh, ending for you that he is going to receive. He wants you to receive punishment. He wants you to receive darkness. He does not want you to enter into the life that God has for you and ultimately into his kingdom. He wants you to die. He wants you to face destruction. That is not what God wants for you. In fact, that's the reason why Jesus came. Jesus did not have to come. The only reason he came is because he loved us to lay his life down for us so that we can can have significance, meaning, and purpose, even when life is difficult, and that ultimately we can spend eternity in God's kingdom where there's no more pain, suffering, death, lying, cheating, stealing, none of these things because of what Christ has done for us. And so again, we just need to recognize that one of the greatest works of the devil has been to convince people that God works like the devil and the devil works like God. And all Jesus is saying is here is, I am here, I am the gate, I came for you to experience life. And so here's why this is important. Here's why we need to know that Jesus is the gate. And here's what we need to do about it. It may seem obvious, but here's what we need to do. We need to enter through the gate. This is why Jesus came, so that we could enter through the gate. He did all the work necessary. It's not anything we do or anything we say. He laid down his life for us. So all we have to do is enter through the gate so that we can experience life. Now, that being said, in order for us to really experience life, we actually have to enter through the gate. I want to read you a passage in Matthew chapter 7. Actually, it'll be on the screen. And here's what this says. This is Jesus talking here. It's, after, it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded message or sermon from Jesus in the, in the New Testament. And here's what he says, again, talking about the gate. It says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. So you may be wondering, if you're saying that he came to offer life and forgiveness and purpose... Now he's saying enter through the narrow gate. What is up with that? Here's what we need to know. He's not saying it's narrow in the sense that you have to measure up or you have to do something. Only a certain, uh, certain amount of people are allowed in. No, it's narrow because there's only one way. That's what makes it narrow. How to enter it is actually quite wide. It's simply being honest that you need a Savior, that I need a Savior, and trusting in Him. But it's narrow because He is the only way to enter it. And those that, that do not enter it face destruction. It continues on by saying this, verse 14. How narrow is the gate? 
and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So again, why would he say that? If he's here for us, why would he say narrow is the road and difficult, or narrow is the gate and difficult is the road? Here's why. Because if you follow Jesus, what does that mean? That your life is no longer about you. That in response to what Christ has done for, done for us, it's not longer about our pride. It's no longer about our selfishness. It's no longer about people serving us. Instead, in response to what Christ has done for him, we're leading lives that honor him and also serve and love other people. Why? So that other people can also experience the grace and mercy in Jesus. This is what can make it difficult. Following Jesus does not mean your life is going to be great. It does not mean everything is going to go well for you in this life. In fact, sometimes following Jesus makes this life even worse for you. But ultimately, the, the promise that Christ has given you, the, price, the promise that Christ has given me is that true life is waiting for us when we enter God's kingdom. True life, true significance, true meaning is waiting for us, but it is only found in Jesus and not what we can do for ourselves. It kind of reminds me, when I was in high school, I went cliff jumping. So here's what this passage reminds me of, talking about this narrow road. Um, I went cliff jumping. I couldn't even tell you where it was because I never really drove. And, and so it was about like 20 or 30 minutes from where we live. And there was this rock quarry, quarry. And it was like 20 to 25 to 30 feet tall. You weren't supposed to go there, but uh, the person who showed it to us was my small group leader growing up. And he, was at, he went to NC State, so that's, you know, whatever. It's his fault. But anyway, so he said we could go, so of course we went. And we went multiple times. In fact, some of my friends actually got the citations because they got found out, but I never did. But it was a lot of fun. But here's the thing about this rock quarry is that you couldn't find it just by accident. You had to be very specific about where you were going, and you had to, like, drive and, like, park your car in this wooded area. You would have no idea where to go if no, someone didn't tell you. And not only did you have to park your car, then you had to walk like 10 minutes in order to get to the rock quarry. So it was a very specific place you, could, you had to go in order to get it. Now, once you got to the rock quarry, was it worth it? Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. It was absolutely worth this 30-minute drive somewhere and this walking through the woods. Absolutely worth it. And what Jesus is saying is that this is what awaits us. That the difficulties in the New Testament when it talks about us experiencing Jesus and experiencing his kingdom is it says that we will look back on the things that happen in this life. Not only will we actually be able to understand it, but we actually will be thankful for it. Now, I just want to be honest with you. I don't know how to understand how that fully works. There are things in my life that I don't understand. How will I be thankful that this happened? You might be experiencing something. You might be going through a season in your life right now where you might be seeing, how in the world will I ever be thankful for this, for this thing to happen? My answer to that is, I don't know. But that is the promise that awaits us. And so I often think of this cliff jumping thing as it was very narrow. There's only one way to get it. It was kind of difficult, not that difficult. But unless you took this narrow road, you, wouldn't, you weren't getting there. But it was more than worth it in the end. And that is what Jesus is promising us. It doesn't mean your life is going to go great. It doesn't mean you're going to get everything you ever wanted. But the end result of entering in through the gate is that everything that you've ever wanted, your hopes and your dreams will be fulfilled. Everything that happened in this life will make sense. And we will spend eternity and, and, and a glory in ways that we can't even under, understand or describe how amazing it will be. And so again, we need to enter through the gate and here's why we need to enter through the gate. And this is really the bottom line, what I want us to take away this morning, and that's this. Here's why we enter through the gate. Because when I enter the gate, I find freedom, not restriction. When I enter the gate, I find freedom, not restriction. You know what? When Jesus talks about this idea of a sheep pen and the gate and the pasture, here's the imagery that would have been coming up in people's minds as they hear Jesus talk. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, land was kind of analogous for God's freedom and God's blessing and God's rest in your life. And so you can think of the Israelites, if you're familiar with that story, they entered the promised land. And whenever they disobeyed God and did not honor God, what happened? That people attacked their land. Sometimes they were exiled. And even not even just the Israelites, you can read different stories throughout the Old Testament of even people having personal property. And when they honored God, there was rest, there was peace. And when there wasn't, when they didn't, they lost their land. And so this idea of coming in and finding land would have been linked to prosperity, to blessing, to rest, and to peace. And that is what Jesus is offering for us, that ultimately one day we will experience this in full. If we enter the gate, we will find freedom that we long for, not restriction. And here's why this is important, because in Jesus, we have rest and true life. He's saying this land imagery that you saw throughout the Old Testament, I'm here. I am the gate. When you enter through me, you will find freedom, you will find rest, and you will find true life. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying you don't have to search. You don't have to try your best. It's not about what you could do. Or what, it's all about what I have done. This is why I came. I came to be a gate for you to enter. In other words, he is inviting us in to himself. And just think about it. What is life like outside the pasture for a sheep? It could lead to death. It could lead to destruction. It kind of reminds me of uh, like the zombie TV shows, like The Walking Dead. I used to watch. I haven't watched in forever. But what would happen, I know at one point, this shouldn't be a spoiler really, but at one point they like find a jail. And so they're there for like a season of the show or whatever. And it's great for them like because they're not walking around like the jail has like, you know, walls and gates. And so the zombies are out, so they're pretty safe. It makes the show pretty boring because you want them to kind of be running for their life. But when they're in the jail, everything's fine. And then kind of something happens and they have to leave the jail and then life's hectic again. And then they find like this compound in this neighborhood that's got all these gates around it and life's okay. And then things happen and gets chaotic again. And that's what Jesus is saying is that in the pasture, there is rest and there is freedom and there is life. Outside of the pasture, there is death and there is destruction. Again, it doesn't mean in this life when you decide to follow Jesus that everything will go well for you. It will not. But our, our hope for the future is knowing that one day it will, that one day everything Jesus has done for us will be, will be realized and will be experienced by us because of what Christ has done for us, which means that if you don't see your need for the gate, if you don't understand your need for the gate, you will not desire it. If we think, well, I'm good on my own, I don't need this, I don't need this Jesus thing, I'm a good person, that sort of thing, then we won't enter the gate because we will not understand our need for it. And here's our need for it. Here's the gospel, that you and I are sinners, that we have shamed God, that God is perfect, and we are not. All of us have fallen short. I say this all the time. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe in God or not. We would all have done things that we would, even we would say are wrong. And so if God is perfect and just, he has to do something with our sinfulness, with our shame, with our guilt. And so he sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to uphold all of the laws of the Old Testament for us on our behalf so that anyone who would place their trust in him and repent and be honest about their sins, that we need a savior, that he came to give us life. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you say. It's about what he has done for us. That's the gospel. We put it this way. Because of what Jesus has done for us, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. There's no gate that you need to build on your life because Jesus built it for us. All he's doing is saying, all you have to do is come in. All you have to do is find rest. That is why I came. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. It'll be on the screen. He says this, come to me. Come to the gate, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest because I care for you, and that is why I came. Listen, Jesus made a gate 
when there would be no great. Jesus gave us hope where there is no hope. And what he's inviting us to do is come into the gate and come and follow him. He's saying, come into this land and let me guide you. Let me be your shepherd, which we'll talk about next week. But again, this morning, here's what I want us to walk away with and understand, is that when I enter the gate, I find freedom and not restriction. That is why Jesus came. Let's pray.